0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24/7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you for uh, joining us for this post-primary election day election of political rewind. I'm Bill Niggett. You know. Typically, on the day after an election, we would start by uh, having our panel, um, and we've got a good portion of the A-team here today to uh, uh, talk with us. We'd normally start by asking them to break down some of the results of the biggest races that were on the ballot yesterday, and certainly we are going to get to that in the show today. But uh, really, we can't possibly start the show without talking about how the election unfolded across the state you know, yesterday I asked you to send me an email, uh, f- put us on Facetime, whatever. Uh, your how you, things went for you at polling places uh, when you went to vote yesterday, and I, I thought, well, I'll probably get a few people who will, some of whom will have had good experiences, others bad, and and I can maybe read from them. So I was overwhelmed with so many notes from so many people, a- and I have to say that. They were, your experiences were clearly mixed. There are people who walked into their polling place, uh, got to vote within 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. Uh, there were others and found no problems. There were others of you who were waiting in line, you told me, for hours. Uh, when you got into the polling place, you found that some of the machines weren't working, the scanners weren't working properly. Um, and we're going to talk about all of that on the show today. I, I do think that I want to start, though, the note that sort of summed it all up for me came from a listener who said, and I quote, Oive, can't wait to hear your show today to hear the most postmortem for another embarrassing Georgia political moment. Uh, it was a, uh, an embarrassment to a great many people out there. The finger pointing has already started. We're going to talk about all that and a lot more on the show today. To do that, we have Greg Bluestein, the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, I saw that you were writing uh, most of the day, filing from various locations. Were you one of the people who was up late into the night, early this morning, watching what was going on?
2: Oh yeah, I went to bed around four, four thirty. So yeah, I'm, I'm running on, <clears throat> I'm running on fumes, but. I got to say, I know we'll get into it, but you know, yesterday around 6 a.m., right as I was waking up, I started getting the first complaints before the polls even opened. And, and embarrassing is one way to put it; infuriating is another. It, it just it, it,
1: things. Yeah, be better than this. yeah, that, that's that, I mean, I think that's the absolute truth. Uh, we started getting complaints before we went on the air at nine o'clock yesterday, so I know exactly what you're uh, talking about. We're also joined today uh, by uh, uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz political science professor at Emory University, and his colleague, Professor Andra Gillespie, also in the political science department, and uh, UGA political science professor Audrey Haynes. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, Andra, I wanted to come to you real quickly because you had sent me a note yesterday saying that you were one of the people who did vote yesterday and were wanted to share your experience with us.
3: So I didn't have a bad experience. Um, you know, it's longer than it usually took, but from door to door, I could walk to my precinct. It took me 15 minutes to walk walk out of my door, stand in line, vote, and then come back home. Um, you know, it was pretty efficient. Um, I think we had – I don't always recognize poll workers, but some of those poll workers looked pretty familiar to me. So we had experienced hands. I saw no problems with the voting machines. I I chose to vote in person because I wanted to use the new machines and get that experience. Um, And so in that respect, it was a positive experience. I did have to line up, you know, in the street in order to, you know, wait to vote because of social distancing. Um, But, you know, when I compare it, it seemed like it was about as heavy as I remember standing in line to vote in the 2012 election in my precinct. And, and, And just, you know, in part because of demand and because I voted early in 2008, I remember standing on line for four hours. So I didn't have that type of experience so you know I had a pretty positive experience I was in a really well-run precinct in DeKalb County so you know I I, you know I I feel for the people who had to stand in line especially if they had to do it in the rain yesterday afternoon
1: Mm -hmm. did any of the rest of you vote yesterday I should have asked before we went on the air but I I think everybody else voted in advance um I voted in I early voted and like uh uh Andre, I wanted to go into the polling place, the early voting polling place, to see what the machines were like. I had a ter- very, very easy experience, but so many people, Greg Bluestein, did not, and uh, it, it, and the blame game really has started in in full um, when you saw that in Fulton County and DeKalb County and a few other counties there were people who uh, who were standing in line for three, four, five hours. Uh, and, and we've heard stories yesterday about polling places which didn't have enough machines or didn't get their machines until after uh, the hours to begin voting were supposed to start. Um, this is not the way, Greg, we want to see an election unfold. And the country is looking at Georgia and saying, what the heck, why can't you get your act together?
2: Yeah, especially when this was entirely predictable. <clears throat> I mean— um, you know, we have been reporting for months about these issues. Uh, the pandemic uh, added another wrinkle by by forcing poll closures and and fewer staffers. But certainly, um, you know, it also offers an option of, of more um, mail-in voting. And, and, and more than 1.2 million Georgians cast early ballots, mostly by mail. Um, but that was what was so frustrating about this: is that the elections officials had extra time to cope with this. The the problems were predictable, and um, my first stop of the morning was yesterday was at at Cross Keys High School, and it wasn't that the line was moving slowly; it was the line wasn't moving at all, and and not just for a short period, but for hours and hours. And you know, it was just, it 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 was really um, the word I used earlier, infuriating to see all these people who were out there, you know, missing work, missing their families, whatever, who 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 were waiting in line to no avail. I mean, the the machines were just not working. Um, Whether or not state elections officials said there were no equipment mishaps, I talked to the precinct managers of a few different polling places yesterday that said they could not get the machines to work, and they weren't getting any technicians out to help them, and they'd already run through the provisional ballots. And so those were instances where we'll never know how many people were dissuaded from voting, but untold numbers of, of folks just didn't cast ballots because they didn't want to wait in line for three, four, five hours.
1: Alan, uh, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond yesterday issued a statement about the problems that were unfolding in DeKalb County. And here's just a portion of what he said. This is his quote. He called the issues with voting machines, quote, an attack on the democratic process. Is that an exaggeration or is there some truth to what he's saying?
4: Well, it's certainly a fundamental problem. Uh for democracy when uh, when people are not able to to vote um, or when people are discouraged from voting because uh, – or have to leave polling places be, because they can't afford to wait in line for three or four or five hours. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a real problem. Now, the question is, you know, who's responsible for that? And right now what we're seeing is that, you know, there's a blame game going on. The uh, – the Secretary of State is trying to blame the county officials. The county officials, people like Michael Thurman, are trying to blame the Secretary of State. My own feelings, there's plenty of blame to go around. But personally, I don't see this as what Stacey Abrams called it this morning, which is intentional voter suppression. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I think that you had uh, a lot of problems here due to uh, the – fact that there were a lot fewer polling places. Um, people didn't show up at the polling places. The machines weren't working. But you know, So there's blame to go around and, on all sides. But uh, intentional voter suppression just doesn't make sense to me. The Secretary of State actually deserves credit, I think, for mailing uh, absentee ballot applications to every voter in the state. Um, you know That was not automatic. That was not something that's happened in every state. Um, now, we need to do better. We need to learn the lessons of this disaster for uh, the future, for the runoff election in August, and certainly for the general election in November, where you're going to have a lot more people voting.
1: Audrey and Andra, I want to have both of you weigh in on this. I'll let you go first on this, uh, 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 Audrey. Uh, A lot of people are, like Stacey Abrams, going to say this is an example of voter suppression, uh, it's already being talked about in the national media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Huffington Post. I mean, everybody's talking, pointing the finger again at Georgia and, and saying that voter suppression is underway here. But, but I'd like you, Audrey, and you, Andre, to weigh in on whether you agree or disagree with Alan uh, that this is or isn't an example of voter suppression.
0: Well, I would, um, I would venture to say that as a political scientist, we'll all agree that one of the things that we need right now is more information. So um, I was observing uh, at multiple uh, precincts yesterday, talking to county managers, talking to voters afterwards, and one of the things that really stood out to me is the possibility for human error. You get to your space, a plug doesn't work. You know, they get there, some of them get there at 4.30 in the morning, and what people don't realize is there is so many hoops to jump through for those precinct managers to certify, you know, what tags are there, the counts that are going on. It is a huge, complex activity. Even lining up your um, voting area booths so that there's the social distancing that's going on, so that people have privacy, so they're not walking around there, it is not easy. And there are going to be times when a line emerges. For example, one person comes in, they, they have to do the, the, the change because they didn't want to bring in their um, absentee ballot. And I heard people literally saying, I got my absentee ballot, but I didn't want to put a stamp on it. So I came in here to vote. And I saw the precinct um, workers do everything they could to make sure that person voted in multiple places. So, um, you know, it's hard to say that it's real voter suppression unless you get all the data. That's in there. I honestly think that the Secretary of State did not want that to emerge as an issue um, because that doesn't help them at all. But their goal was to get things to operate as smoothly as possible because that's the narrative they want to have out there.
3: So, I mean, I, I would in general agree with Alan. So, yes. It is a problem when people are discouraged from voting, and that does meet a standard that I would say sort of defines voter suppression. But when we talk about voter suppression, what we're talking about is intentionally discouraging certain people as opposed to others from voting. And here is where I think we have to look at a lot of things. So when voting rights activists bring this up, I think it is right for them to bring this up as a possibility um, because there's been a history of it and a recent history of it. But as a scientist, we also have to make sure that we rule out alternative hypotheses before we draw a conclusion. And Audrey's right, we don't have enough data. And the reality is, is that there are a lot of confounding variables here that actually might actually be more explanatory of what's going on here than just there was a fix in. So when we think about the pandemic and everybody trying to figure out sort of how to socially distance and how to clean up and do everything that needs to be done with that, when we think about the uh, issues with the fact that these are new voting machines and that there were probably going to be glitches anyway and that you have unfamiliar staff and that there might not have been communication and training and that you have poll workers who decide at the last minute to not show up. What I see here is a lot of lack of planning um, and a lot of lack of communication.
0: One thing um, that I noticed was it was a long ballot for some people. They took a long time answering those questions. They took their voting responsibility very seriously. Also, I saw in one polling place, they had chairs set up so people could sit and go through their ballot. And I think that's somewhat Encourage some people to go through and take their time. It helped a lot of the elderly voters. In another one, they had no chairs set up. So you see differences like this across these precincts. Um, and is it is it not to be expected that in the place that has the most people, you know, I mean, lining up, that you're going to have some glitches? That will happen. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and I think the social distancing sort of compounds the problem. Obviously, because it means that you're allowing fewer people into the polling places. And yes, the long ballot, I think, uh, is, is a problem uh, and is compounding it, uh, the length of time that people have to wait because individual voters are taking a longer time to fill out their ballots. Yeah. And, um, you know, and the other problem we know is a lot of people claim that they never got their absentee ballots uh, or their absentee ballots weren't received. And so there are a lot of things that we really need to find out about. I, I think one of the things that we need to find out more about is why um, the lines were so much longer at some polling places than others, and why it took so much longer for people to vote in some polling places than others. And it does seem that the locations where the longest lines uh, and the longest waits were taking place were mainly in minority communities, um, and which is not the first time we've noticed that. So I think that there are, there are some important questions that need to be answered and addressed before we get to the runoff and before we get to the general
2: election.
1: Go ahead, Greg.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, it, you know, we noticed the same thing. It wasn't hard to notice that that all the long lines, that that, that many of these big problems were happening in predominantly African American uh, areas. Um, look, Mayor Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and former Mayor Kasim Reed made <laughs> the same point early yesterday, saying, "Why does it keep on uh, seeming seeming to disproportionately affect know um, major, majority minority uh, polling sites?" And uh, you didn't see too many. Uh, majority white polling sites where people were still voting past you know midnight uh, this morning, but certainly that was happening down in Union City. Um, so a lot of a lot of questions need to be answered. And the Brennan Center um, has come out with a study last week that showed that um, it, this is nationwide, but that voters. Um, that disproportionately, voters in African American, predominantly African American areas wait 45 percent longer than white voters across the nation, and Latino voters wait 46 percent longer. So certainly, it's a it's a problem that needs to be addressed in Georgia and around the country. Audrey,
0: well, one thing I just want to put out is this was a primary. This was a primary. What what is the what is the purpose of intense, intensely voter suppressing during a primary? You can see it you know, having more of a real impact in a general election where the powers that be, whoever they are, are going to try and manipulate the outcome. But this was a primary. I mean, this is the last place you want to, um, I mean, you don't really have the benefit. And that benefit is not as visible. So, you know, it, it may be a question of resources. And if, if, Areas where there are more minority voters are not getting the resources that they need and the support that they need, especially in larger areas. Um, that is probably a real question that needs to be addressed.
1: All right. So let's talk about the blame game and, and really kind of pick up on this notion that uh, that Brennan's study is fascinating. And uh, if it's replicated here in Georgia and minority polling places are underrepresented in terms of the apparatus they need – the poll workers they need, then that will uh, have an impact that could be looked at as voter suppression in the fall. So the, the question becomes, how does the state pull together? I mean the officials in this state pull together to solve this problem before November. And uh, the rhetoric coming out of people's mouths yesterday does not bode well for a kumbaya moment in which everybody uh, plans to work together. We already heard uh, uh, Michael Thurman, who— called this an attack on the democratic process. He blamed it on the, uh, on, on the state election office because he said they're responsible for all of this. We had Gabriel Sterling, the COO of the Secretary of State's office and who oversaw uh, putting all these machines out there on the 2 o'clock show yesterday. And uh, he attacked the uh, county, said it was all their fault. And, and in fact, last night, after Michael Thurman's statement... He went on, uh, Gabriel Sterling did, and said that the DeKalb County CEO doesn't seem to know that training poll workers and equipping polling places is a responsibility that Georgia law places squarely on the county. goes a long way to explain the issues that we saw today in DeKalb. Greg, I'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I was saying just as predictable that we have voting issues is is predictable that there's finger pointing. You know, you're right. I mean, this this has become a a partisan issue. It's no surprise after the 2018 midterms and, and elections before then. And the fight over voting machines, in in general. Um, but the problem, of course, with the finger pointing is there's no solutions. Um, uh, lawmakers go back in a few days. The legislative session. Um, there's a there's a slight chance that they'll address this. I reported this morning that the Georgia NAACP is planning a massive rally at the capitol on monday to demand uh voting changes um and 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 to and to prevent uh they, they want to prevent the passage of a certain bill that democrats think will sow even more confusing the, the, the voting process uh and then there's of course the other way which is through the courts and Stacey abrams last night was asked in a in a, in a virtual press conference um whether or not verified action her voting rights group is considering legal action and if so um when they might file. And she said yes to the first they're considering and soon to the second about when they might file. So that's just one of the different outlets that we could we could see um, some changes. But um, certainly um, voting rights experts say there needs to be a host of changes to make sure this doesn't happen again. And all the finger pointing doesn't do much to, to progress that.
1: Alan?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I'm not too optimistic that we're going to I get these problems solved in time for uh, the general election, let alone the, the runoff primary in, in August. I mean, I think there is a solution um, and that's vote by mail. Um, you know, this has been debated extensively. It's been studied. Uh, a number of States already are, are voting by mail where every voter is mailed a ballot, not an app, not an application for an absentee ballot, but an actual ballot and everyone votes by mail. Uh, and there are drop off boxes and, um, You know, there's enough time for people to fill out the ballot and 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 drop it off or mail it in. And in states that do that, you get, you know, strong turnout. Um, It works well. There have been relatively few problems. There's no evidence of fraud. And there's also no evidence contrary to what the president has claimed that this disproportionately favors one party over the other. Now, are we going to do that in Georgia? No, Um, certainly not, at least not in this election. Um, and partly because I mean the President is making it even more difficult for election officials and especially Republicans to go along with this, even though there are Republican states that do it. So that's unfortunate. But uh, there are things that can be done to make it better, uh, Better training, the equipment needs to be checked out, uh, and make sure we be sure that the equipment is operating. There are always going to be some problems, but they don't need to be this extensive. And as I said, allocating the voting machines uh, 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 more appropriately uh, and making sure the polling places are, are staffed adequately um, you know it'll, a lot frankly is going to depend on where we are with, with the coronavirus uh, pandemic when we get to August and when we get to the fall um, because if this thing is still around and it's, and, it's, and or it's increasing uh, it's going to just make these challenges even more difficult.
3: I mean I would agree with Alan I mean this all right is certainly- uh, Andre. This is certainly an endorsement of 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 expanding vote-by-mail opportunities, but there are process problems with vote-by-mail as well. So there are all these people who didn't get their absentee ballots in time to be able to use this. And so this points to sort of a logistical kind of supply chain problem that really needs to be addressed and so you know the recriminations might make for great political slaughter but it doesn't lead well to solutions and so i would say call in some consultants so if you want to call in a McKinsey, if you want to call in a systems engineer to actually seriously interrogate the process and look at sort of where the bottlenecks are what the resource constraints are whether or not the formula for allocating uh, voting machines makes sense and is equitable Um, Like Those are ways that you actually solve the problem. But the idea of having uh, partisans and having state and local authorities pointing fingers at each other isn't helpful at all. And it's not actually going to establish trust um, in whatever the outcome of any investigation is. So really, the politicians need to pull themselves out of it and and, and let some professionals come in and, and give them sound advice.
1: All right. With that, we're going to have to get to a break. One last comment before we do get to the break, and that's this. I mean, uh, Michael Thurman said this was an attack on democracy. Uh, Certainly making it difficult for people to vote is a challenge to our democratic process. But before we take this break, for those of you who stood in line for three, four, five hours in pouring rain because you wanted to cast a ballot, you are so deserving of our respect and our praise because you're what makes our democracy really function well the th- the hunger to want to cast a ballot and with all the problems that we saw yesterday you conquered you're going to end up being like survivors of a war a battle you're going to look back on June 9th and say, I was at the battle of uh, a precinct polling place number 46 in DeKalb (laughs) County. And (laughs) you prevailed because you got your ballot cast. So congratulations to you. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, let's look at the returns that we're getting on some of the races in uh, the primary election. This is Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind.
1: Um, As we continue our show, I just want to take one quick moment. Uh, If you are regular listeners to GPB Radio, you certainly know by now that uh, we began our spring pledge drive uh, yesterday, and um, we are taking uh, longer pledge breaks in most of our programming uh, so that our people can ask you to become contributors or to continue your contributions. Uh, GPB decided that because the election is so important to everyone, Because of all the other news that's going on right now, that uh, on uh, on yesterday and today, we would suspend our usual fund breaks, our fundraising breaks to have a full political rewind, uh, because we do think what's happening in the news is so important. Uh, But I would ask you this, if you are not yet contributing to GPB radio, this is the time we really need your help Uh, We're coming to the end of our fiscal year. It's been a rough year for everybody, including us. And uh, if you support GPB Radio, if you support Political Rewind, which I know so many of you do, uh, you can go to gpb.org. You can um, make a donation right there. That's certainly the easiest way to do it. Uh, to tell us that you appreciate the work we do to bring you important political news and other news of the day on this show. That's all I'll say about it today except to thank the people of GPB, our management team, who recognize that we should have a full show on the air on this important day after the election. All right, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Dr. Audrey Haynes, and Dr. Ellen Abramowitz are with us, along with Greg Bluestein. Let's start looking at some of the races, Greg. The, the top state uh, race on the ballot was the Democratic race for U.S. Senate. John Ossoff, at this hour, appears to be on the edge of winning the without a runoff, of just going over 50 percent, but that's far too uncertain for us to predict. Greg, where does that stand?
2: Yeah, isn't it amazing that we're halfway through the show and we haven't talked about the the actual mm-hmm. election results yet? Because that tells us all about <laughs> yeah. problems. But yeah, John Ossoff is around forty-eight and a half percent. Forty-eight is his least favorite number. That, of course, was the number that he hit in the 2017 first round and second round of that of that um, that epic twenty seventeen special election con- contest against uh, Karen Handel. Um, and the reason why no one's calling this race as a you know as a runoff or anything yet is because there's about seven hundred. 15 or so thousand votes uh, in, but Democratic officials expect there to be closer to 900,000. So there's about 150 to 200,000 votes expected to be still outstanding. Many of them come from Metro Atlanta, which John Ossoff just dominated. Um, uh, Teresa Tomlinson, who's in second place, um, she did the best in, around her West Georgia hometown of, of Columbus. She won that county and a few surrounding counties by, by big margins. But John Ossoff just dominated in, in other urban areas, including Metro Atlanta, Albany, Macon, Savannah. Um, and that's where... Um, his aides think a lot of those outstanding ballots are still out. We're still waiting for him. There's 93 percent of precincts reporting. Uh, but that doesn't tell the whole picture because, you know, there could be one precinct that has, you know, a huge cove of votes. Um, but, look, if he doesn't make uh, – if, if he's forced into a runoff against Theresa Tomlinson in August, um, that just means another grueling round of campaigning. And um, that's what Republicans are eagerly looking forward to, um, because they're already united behind David Perdue, who didn't even face a Republican challenger in the primary.
1: You know, Alan. Typically, on an election night, you can look at a map and and compare. You can look at where the precincts have already reported and where they're still outstanding, and come to a pretty clear conclusion as to whether somebody's going to win or not. You say, "Oh, right. well, we know that all these precincts in Cobb County haven't reported yet. They're likely to go for candidate X." So pretty sure that candidate was likely to win, but the absentee balloting throws that all up in the air, which makes the question about Ossoff and some of the other races we'll talk about much more problematic.
4: Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's difficult to tell. I mean, at this point, uh, I think Ossoff has a chance to get to 50% plus one, um, because a lot of the um, uncounted votes appear to be in Fulton and DeKalb, where he won uh, pretty handily. Um, But uh, there are outstanding ballots in other parts of the state as well. He may fall just short of 50 percent. What I would say is based on, you know, research that's been done on runoff elections, uh, we can be pretty confident that given that result, given his wide margin over Teresa Tomlinson and how close he is to 50 percent, that he is a very, very strong favorite to win the runoff if there is a runoff. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, so I think that that, that's uh, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, it's if even in Theresa Tomlinson's interest to really pursue a runoff campaign against him, but given how close he is. So
3: I. I agree with Alan. I mean, I think the thing that's been really tough about watching these returns come in is that it's not it hasn't been 100 percent clear uh, whether or not the reported precincts are just the machine votes from people who voted in person um, or whether or not to what extent that actually includes absentee ballots. So I think this is a lesson for those who sort of put those maps up and report to be a little bit more clear about what's the machine vote versus what is the absentee vote, um, because it's just really hard to tell what's going on right now.
0: Uh, Andre's absolutely right. It's very interesting to see what's happened. It's, it's somewhat difficult to predict. But I would say uh, one of the things, including Senate one and the rest of the contest, was we really did see incumbents do well. We saw people who had name recognition and who have run before, like Ossoff, and who've shown a, an ability to uh, um, uh, raise money um, and get support doing well. That's in his favor. I think a lot of people were looking at uh, electability in the opposition. Um, and uh, we saw a lot of women doing well in this um, permutation. So those are some interesting things that have come out so far.
1: Uh, Greg, uh, the, uh, the, I got to assume that Ossoff was aided first by name recognition. He had run that very, uh, uh, that very high profile race against Karen Handel uh, in the aftermath of President uh, Trump's election victory. He had raised more money than any other Democrat across the country had raised. And uh, so his name recognition was high. And Teresa Tomlinson, who gathered many, many endorsements from important figures in politics, many of them African American, uh, r- ran a strong race. Sarah Riggs Amico uh, did her best. But because of the pandemic, uh, because then in the closing days of the race, the protest marches in the street, the, the, the killings of African-Americans, uh, I, it just created, I think, a dilemma for either of the candidates behind Ossoff to find a way to catch up.
2: You're exactly right. I mean, this is a pandemic that distracted voters for obvious reasons, because they're worried about their own livelihoods and, and their own well-beings. Uh, it, it shifted attention away from these races. At the same time, it expanded the universe, the electorate universe in a, in a massive way. Uh, more mail-in and, and early votes than we've seen in, in, in any presidential primary in history, and a record number of mail-in ballots in general. Um, so it expanded the electorate, but at the same time, the electorate was dis- distracted um, by, by the pandemic, and so it helped people with high name recognition. Um, and I'll say too, it's not a if there is a runoff, there's no certainty that it will be Teresa Tomlinson who faces John Ossoff um, at this moment. Sarah Zamiko and, and Teresa Tomlinson are, are separated by just about um, 10,000 votes so not a big portion especially yeah. when you're talking about a lot of metro atlanta votes still outstanding where amico has fared you know okay not as, not nearly as well as ossoff but um, that's her base as well
3: you know, one of the things that I, I think we'll never know is kind of a, a bit of a counterfactual, but, you know, but for the pandemic, would we have seen kind of a closer race, particularly for somebody like Teresa Tomlinson, who had regional sort of name recognition, but didn't really have the opportunity to press the flush and actually be able to develop a statewide base. So, you know, it's one of the things that we'll never know. But, I, you know, I, I'm assuming that uh, people will Sunday morning quarterback this and they'll probably put a lot of blame on the inability to be able to go out and campaign in person.
4: Well, I, Alan? I, I think, you know, Ossoff had a lot of advantages to, to begin with, even even uh, before the pandemic hit and be, you know, before campaigning had to uh, uh, shut down, except for television uh, advertising. Uh, Ossoff had a big advantage in name recognition um, going into this, uh, as Bill suggested, uh, coming out of that uh, high profile House race. He also raised a lot more money than the other candidates did. Uh, I was looking at the FEC numbers a few days ago, and uh, they weren't – they're not up to date, but they indicated that he's far outraged uh, Tomlinson and Riggs Amico. And, uh, you know, obviously that's a big advantage because, uh, uh, um, you know, the way you communicate with, with voters primarily is television advertising, especially uh, with, uh, you know, live campaigning shut down. So um, I think he had to be considered the, the, the favorite in this to to begin with.
1: We saw that money uh, certainly uh, in terms of TV commercials. Ossoff was yep. all over television spot first with spots uh, with John Lewis's endorsement, which clearly is helpful to his uh, effort to yep. win this thing. And then uh, he uh, put up a rather forceful uh, uh, commercial talking about police violence, uh, and, and so they, he had that advantage because of the money that he had raised. Greg, let's move on to a couple other things. What, interesting that with only one exception, all the incumbents in our congressional delegation uh, uh, prevailed in their races. The exception being David Scott in the 13th District, the Democrat who was running for his uh, 10th term. He's been in in the, the House for uh, almost two decades now. And uh he faced opposition primarily from Michael Owens, who had run against him once before who be, and then went on to become the Cobb county Democratic Party chairman, and then a former state representative, uh Keisha Waits, who it looks like is going to be in a runoff with Scott uh coming up in the summer yes
2: yeah, i mean she she got um close to around a quarter of the vote and forced a forced a runoff against David Scott, a veteran. Um, a veteran lawmaker who um, she charged was not doing enough to promote the interest of, of the Atlanta-based district that, that he represents, um, that he wasn't active enough, that he wasn't forceful enough, he, that, that um, there, was some, there was allegations that he was too close and, and with, with Republican leaders. And really, he, he has been very tight with Republican leaders over the years. Um, uh, David Senator David Perdue counts him as one of his closest Democratic allies. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, but in today's more con- confrontational political environment, uh, those, those sort of compromising tones that, that once were looked at as, as, as essential to Washington are now looked at as, as a negative. And um, there's a lot of voters, especially younger and newer voters, that don't want to see that. They want to see a, a more um, uh, forceful, assertive approach.
1: So Audrey, Keisha Waits, I assume, is one of those women who you suggest uh, did uh, fairly well uh, in, in their race uh, yesterday.
0: She did. And it was interesting because, you know, um, Scott had quite a substantial amount of, of money uh, that he was able to spend compared to her. In fact, I, I read in the AJC, um, I think it may have been a story that Greg wrote, where in the end she had $875 in her campaign war chest, yet she was able to still pull this off because people are listening to uh, these uh, women, especially progressives, the ones who are presenting themselves as progressive. And a lot of the people who may have turned out in person are people who are responding to a lot of what is going on right now. Um, So we might even see some differences in in, um, if people were polled on why they voted earlier, they'd be different than what they um, were voting on just yesterday, what mattered to them, what drew them to the poll. So she was able to get out there and and be heard, and that's really important. I mean, money gets you ads, but sometimes if you get out there on social media, especially the people who are utilizing social media, can cut through it. I know Greg was doing a story on how you campaign during this pandemic, and one of the ways to do it is to piggyback on issues that are going on now and, and sort of catching some attention for the things that you say.
1: Yeah, um, go ahead, Andra.
3: Um, so you know, I, you know this is a call. problem So this I view this as part of the narrative of progressive Democrats challenging more centrist Democrats, right. So this is this seemed kind of more in the lines of the AOC type of of, of, of challenge. Um, and so I think that this is a wake up call for incumbents to make sure that they are responsive uh, to the needs and the interests of their district. Um, and if they're not, then you should expect a primary challenge um, from somebody who might be sort of a little bit more on the ideological flank of, of the party. So, you know, really, you know, really interesting stuff to watch.
1: Um, Alan, uh, let's go up to the 7th Congressional District for a moment. Uh, We have big races on both sides, the Democratic and the Republican side on that. But I was interested in the Democratic uh, results where um, Carolyn Bordeaux, who came within 500 votes of unseating Rob Woodall two years ago. Woodall, of course, now is retiring from Congress, uh, is getting into a runoff um, with uh, Brenda Lopez. Uh, the um, who, for, who could become the first Hispanic woman in the Georgia delegation. But what's interesting about it is that was a race that featured more diversity than we've ever seen, I think, at a ballot in Georgia before. You had Nabila Islam, uh, you had Zara Karinchak, uh, and yet Lopez's persistence uh, seems to have pulled her into a runoff. What do you make of that race?
4: Well, Bordeaux got 46%, um, at least yeah. so far. There are still some votes to be counted there. Um, And it's been called. I mean, so there there will be a a runoff, but she finished far ahead uh, of the second place candidate. And uh, she's pretty close to that 50 percent mark. So, uh, again, I I would have to say that um, that that um, uh, Bordeaux uh, would be a very strong favorite to win to win that runoff. Uh, and, And the other thing that was interesting to me in looking at those returns in the in the seventh district is that. Um, the total number of votes in the Democratic primary was far greater than the total number of votes in the Republican primary. Um, these were two competitive primaries. Um, and Renee Unterman on the, the, the Republican side lost badly. Uh, she was attacked for being insufficiently pro Trump or uh, insufficiently partisan, which is an interesting attack. Um, so now you end up with a Republican nominee who appears to be a, uh, a very, you know, pretty far right. Uh, very pro-Trump, uh, which I think is going to be a liability for him now in, the, in this district going into the uh, – eventually into the general election. Uh, so I, I really think that Bordeaux uh, at this point should be considered the favorite not only to win the runoff, but I think uh, to ultimately win the seat.
3: You know, so going to the Republican race, one of the things that was really interesting was in the wake of everything that has happened in the last couple of weeks, whether or not um, aligning oneself with Donald Trump is actually a liability or a plus. And so it doesn't appear to be a liability here in the case of Rich McCormick. But going to the, the Democratic side, I think there are a couple of things to kind of point out here. One, um, money is a signal of competitiveness, but it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is guaranteed uh, to win. So we could look at sort of, you know, uh, Zara uh fundraising and see that it didn't actually really translate into votes. But the other thing that's really interesting about this race is, uh, you know, Gwinnett County is very diverse, um, and it's uh, diverse in a multiracial, multiethnic kind of sense. What I see is that uh, the uh, minority candidates split the vote. Um, And then the consolidation around um, a a white Democratic candidate who would be considered, uh, you know, acceptable to, you know, a a, a plurality of the population. And so, uh, you know, we've seen evidence of this in black-white contests where you have multiple black candidates winning and then the black vote kind of splits amongst them and then a white candidate wins. seems like there may be something very similar going on here. Um, And so uh, that would suggest that, uh, you know, if there is a preference in Gwinnett County in particular for having, you know, a candidate of color, that there probably has to be a consensus around the candidate who may not actually reflect, you know, in his or her descriptive diversity, all of the diversity of the district, but just represents some part of that.
1: Um, Before we get to a break, Greg, uh, over in the 6th District, that race is set. It's going to be a rematch. Karen Handel won the Republican nomination, as many people expected she would. And uh, she'll face uh, incumbent Lucy McBath for the second time, Greg.
2: Yeah, a rematch, and uh, one that has a lot of the same dynamics in 2018. Uh, Lucy McBath is, is continuing her the same approach she has, She took in 2018 with focus, especially on gun rights. And Karen Handel has <coughs> been endorsed not once but twice by President Trump um, in recent days. So she'll have the full backing of the White House. And now that the president is going back on the campaign trail— Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him um, come down here multiple times between now and November.
4: Um, So he may very well come down and campaign for her. Uh, I wouldn't make this point that um, having President Trump's support and endorsement or being seen as a strong supporter of the president is certainly an advantage in a Republican primary. Um, And all, as, as far as I can tell, all the Republican candidates, all the leading Republican candidates, in these contested primaries were trying to outdo each other uh, in, in their support for President Trump. That's not going to be, in my view, um, the uh, ideal strategy going into a general election in a swing district. Um, you know, if you're in a safe Republican district, of course, it's fine. It doesn't matter. But in a district like seven or six, uh, I think these are swing districts that are trending Democratic. If anything, President Trump is unpopular right now. He's unpopular in Georgia right now. Uh, his popularity is going down right now uh, for reasons that I hope we get to talk to talk about. Um, so being that closely tied to the president going into the general election, I think, is uh, it, it could potentially be a big problem for some of these Republican candidates in swing districts.
1: Alan Abramowitz, I got to get you a break, but thank you for being willing to produce the final segment of Political Rewind, in which we will, in fact, talk about what's happening to President Trump's approval ratings these days and how that could make an impact, as we've already started discussing on uh, Georgia races in the fall. Uh, this is Political Rewind, we'll be right back. At a time when
0: information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get
1: your podcasts. Just a quick program note, uh, as you savvy Political Rewind listeners know, uh, the 9 o'clock show that we do now is live at 2 o'clock. We do what we like to call an encore uh, an episode of Political Rewind, rerunning the show at 9 for people who could not hear it then. Uh, as we did yesterday, today we are going to do a live show at 2 o'clock because we think there's too much happening uh, in uh, hour by hour in terms of the election results and people's concerns about what happened yesterday. Um, David Ralston, the Speaker of the Georgia House, has agreed to join us because he wants to launch an investigation of what happened. We'll hear from him on that subject and I know he's terribly concerned about hate crimes, Bill, as well. So the speaker uh, will be with us, as will uh, Jim Galloway, Patricia Murphy. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you for this afternoon. All right, uh, Alan Abramowitz, um, what's happening? The president, if you, we, we don't, we're not going to go through all the polls, but NBC, Wall Street, Journal, uh, the, uh, uh, the, well, CNN. all of the polls right now mm-hmm. show the president. Yeah, CNN, he's, he's dropping Rapidly in terms of yes. approval rating, Alan.
4: Right. If you look at his uh, at, at the average uh, on uh, the say 538 website um, or on Real Clear Politics, uh, you can see that uh, over the past uh, uh, three or four weeks, his approval rating has fallen. Uh, so he was already underwater, but uh, but he's dropped uh, 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 further, and that's reflected in in the m- results of the matchups with Joe Biden. He's also losing ground. Uh, there and this this is a very uncomfortable position for an incumbent president to be in. Uh, I, I think that this um, the combination of the pandemic and and now with the uh, responses to the um, the killing of George Floyd and the protests around the country uh, have really uh, put the president in a difficult place and he doesn't really know quite how to respond. he's sort of flailing around and and some of the things he's said and done, you know this uh, Clearing the protesters away in front of the White House so he could have the photo up in front of the church. And now this latest thing, um, you know, uh, tweeting or uh, retweeting conspiracy theories about a 75-year-old man who was knocked down and, and badly injured by police in Buffalo and claiming that he may have been uh, an Antifa uh, provocateur. Uh, you know, these, these things are, are not helping him. Um, uh, this may play – it plays well with, with his base. But, but right now, you know, that his base is not going to be enough to get him reelected. Um, and uh, so, you know, if he continues down that road, I, I, I just think that he's going to dig himself deeper and deeper into a hole. And I think George is very much in, at this point in play in, in the presidential election and in, and in the Senate elections.
0: A trend that we're seeing, ever increasing trend back to back, is just a failure to respond in a presidential manner. In fact, um, The more recent tweet put put some of the activities in more of the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs kind of category where people are doing a double take and going, during this time where you have all of these people taking these issues very seriously, our president is retweeting a a conspiracy theorist who is quite questionable as well uh, from an anonymous blog and all Mm -hmm. of these strange things going on. So even people who have been supportive. Um, are starting to question the behavior, and it is probably a very good um, reason to question whether taking hydroxychloroquine is a good Mm -hmm. idea because it may be affecting his judgment.
3: So, you know, the thing that I would look at in the polls is to look at the breakdown and the crosstabs by party and to look at what independents are doing. And so the question here is, are independents uh, behaving and expressing attitudes that are closer to Democrats Republicans, and so when we see President Trump's poll numbers drop amongst independents, that's not a good sign for him, um, right? It suggests that the people who you know could be the bellwether in this election are growing tired of the president's antics, and they may have wanted change in 2016, but I'm not sure that this was the kind of change that they bargained for.
2: Look, it's one thing for public media polls and public polls to show a close race for president; it's another thing for three separate internal Republican polls to show that. And I think that really rattled Republicans and, and was a nut, yet another wake-up call that, look, this, is a really, uh, this could be a really close race in, in places like Georgia um, that were not expected to be top of mind in the battleground frame. So, um, yeah, they, they, they see that it's as close as, as, as the uh, approval ratings indicate.
1: And so, Greg, what that uh, goes back to is something that Alan uh, Abramowitz uh, pointed out before the break which is that he was right. All the Republicans on the ballot uh, uh, ran strongly pro-Trump uh, campaigns. Uh, those who emerge victorious may be rethinking that when they have to face a Democrat in the general if this trend continues for the president, Greg.
2: Yeah, we'll see. I actually don't expect that in the 7th District. I just I, I expect it's, it's, it'll be hard for Rich McCormick, whose, whose campaign really took off when Donald Trump retweeted him. Um, you know his his message as a, as an emergency room physician um, to 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 uh, separate himself from from the president. What you're also going to see is things. You know, John Ossoff in the 2017 election, distanced himself. Um, didn't didn't go after Trump aggressively. Now he is. So you're seeing a much more confrontational approach from Democrats up and down the ballot as well when it comes to President Trump. All right.
1: Well, then then our three political scientists will have an interesting study to look at after November. <laughs> uh, the candidates on the Republican side, Greg suggests maybe a Rich McCormick sticks with Trump other Republicans won't, you'll have data to tell you what kind of impact Trump had on those Republican candidates. We're completely out of time for this edition of Political Rewind. My thanks to Andre Gillespie, Audrey Haynes, Ellen Abramowitz, and Greg Bluestein. As I said, we're going to come back with a live show at two o'clock this afternoon. Speaker of the House David Ralston uh, will be joining us. uh, So that should be a terrific show. Thank you all for being with us today. Tom Faust, Sam Bermas-Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, uh, appreciate your work in getting the show up and running. Take care, everybody. See you later.